Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Welcome to Reputations in Crisis. I'm Mike Paul, the Reputation Doctor. Our guest today is Basil Smeichel. Basil is a distinguished lecturer and director of public policy program and the Roosevelt House Institute for Public Policy at Hunter College. With over 15 years of education and 25 years of career dedicated to public service, Basil regularly shares insights on electoral politics, governance, and public policy on national media outlets. You've seen him in places like MSNBC, CNN, and Bloomberg News. He holds a PhD in politics and education and an MPA from Columbia University and received a Bachelor of Science from Cornell University. Please welcome Basil to the program. Hi, Basil. Good to see you, man. Same here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Well, Columbia in the house. Let's 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 dive right in. So let's start with national politics. And of course, we've got to talk Biden, Trump, and DeSantis at minimum. Let's start with our current sitting president. Does he have a good chance of winning re-election? Well, I think he does after some early chatter about whether or not he should or should not run from the Democrats. Um, and some, and I would say that conversations continued, though somewhat muffled um, as of late. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that given the coalition that Democrats were able to cobble together in 2022, independent voters and disaffected Republican voters, that if the party and the administration can maintain that coalition going into 2024, he's got a really good shot at, um, at, at winning. I say that in part because if it's a Trump-Biden rematch, I don't think anything on the right has changed with respect to their um, views toward Trump. In other words, if you're a disaffected Republican or an independent, um, I think the concerns you had about Trump in 2022 are still going to be there in 24. Can I interject a quick question, if you don't mind? Uh, what is that coalition? People must be thinking what I'm thinking. I'm, I might know the majority of it, but if you had some bullet points, what is the Biden coalition to win past and future what are the bullet points of the different types of groups that they make? I mean, it's it's largely, I mean, if you take the older Democratic coalition, right? So it's largely um, voters of color, African-American, Latino, Asian voters, although um, you didn't have a high turnout um, uh, among African-Americans in 2022, and you have Latinos and Asian-Americans have, have, you know, they're more voted for Trump in 2018. 20 than did in 2016. I still think that that is a core of the Democratic coalition. If you had, you also had um, suburban voters, mostly su many suburban white women, 
um, that that voted for Democrats, you know, again, largely against Donald Trump and not just for Democrats. Um, and, and you have a, a significant number of young people. Um, and again, those same coalition, those same groups came out in large numbers in 2022. So when you had some interviews recently, you described maybe it's not DeSantis time and maybe it's leaning more towards Trump because of several factors. What is DeSantis doing different than Trump that you believe might not get him the nomination? Well, it's a couple of things. I think he doesn't necessarily present an alternative to Trump. And I think that's probably the, the, the most important point to be made, just politically, if you just, you know, just think about this, the sort of raw politics of it. You know, if you're going to get someone who is Trump light, he's sort of moving away, trying to move away from Trump um, and attacking him. But when you look at the policies that he's making, he's trying to codify um, in law in Florida a lot of things that are brewing on the, on the right, you know, in codifying the culture war, codifying racial hierarchy, codifying what he would call anti woke an anti-woke agenda, but I call it a sort of a, a white supremacy agenda, as opposed to a, an anti-woke agenda. Because he's trying to codify that, I think he definitely presents as someone who actually understands how government works, someone who understands the bureaucracy and how to pull the levers of political and bureaucratic power to get things done. But it remains to be seen whether or not he engages the voter in the, with the same emotional content, with the same pressure points that, and emotional touch points that Donald Trump can. So my point is, if you want someone like Donald Trump, then why not just vote for Donald Trump? If you want someone that is different, that presents an alternative, I don't think DeSantis really does that if you're a, if you're a Trump-era Republican voter. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. What if the main strategy that's whispered within the DeSantis team is to be more racist than Donald Trump, and that race is still the major agenda in this country with people believing, at least the majority of whites, that things are being taken away by others and, and we are the others. What if that's the strategy and they might be putting all their eggs in one basket with that alone, with all of the various things that we think that are involved with the codifying that you're discussing, and he gets even more extreme. I do think that's the strategy. I, I think the strategy is, you know, where Trump had a malleable policy agenda, meaning if you're, you're whoever the last person in his ear was, is the policy that gets made. It's clear that dissent is, is very intentional around his policy agenda and very intentional about how to get it implemented. And I've always said that what's scary about him is that, you know, he becomes a roadmap for other Republican governors that want to do the same thing, not just now, but certainly when he is in office, he, you know, if he would have become president, he uses the bully pulpit to sort of enforce that nationally. I do think it becomes harder to make that case across the country, um, particularly in some of these, um, in, in some of these early states in the primary, but certainly when you try to move to the right in a general election. I think you, I think that's part of the problem that he doesn't, I don't think that he has 
uh, particularly with the reproductive restrictions in Florida. I don't think that's a good general election strategy. So even if he were to win a primary, I can't say that he he has a good shot of winning winning a general election. And what do you say to those that simply say he's four years too early um, for all the above reasons that you just mentioned, that uh, this is Trump's race already? And what, what, what does an oppo research package on DeSantis look like? Trump has inferred and implied that he has something more on DeSantis. I don't think he's thrown everything out yet because he needs it in the race. What are the whispers saying about an op research package on DeSantis? I used to do op research on national and state and local uh, elections back in my day. Um, as we were talking about policy, obviously you got to win before you govern, right? So one of the ways of winning is, unfortunately, in these type of races, throwing dirt first and hoping that it sticks more to you than your opponent and reframes who you are from a very negative perspective. So yeah, so, so you're asking like, what is the what is the oppo on DeSantis? That's correct. I mean, I, if I, I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure what's necessarily out there now. I'm sure there I'm sure there is something. But you know, if I'm trying to, if I'm the Trump team, just from what I've seen publicly, if I'm the Trump team, um, what I would, I would probably just frame him as um, someone who doesn't have. I don't think he has the sort of hearts. He's not willing to do the the tough, make the tough decisions, kind of do the dirt that Donald Trump is willing to do. He's trying to play it too carefully. He's trying to make a name for himself nationally, but he was the president, so he has the record. I think Trump, unlike DeSantis, and I would say this is negative for the rest of the country, but Trump would see this as a positive. You know, Trump has the ability to to, to lead people to a January 6th, right? DeSantis can't do that. He doesn't have that kind of following. If I'm Trump, I would lean on the fact that he has the ability to really touch, uh, connect with the with his voter in a way that DeSantis probably could never do. Um, he's a, and I would label DeSantis as a good bureaucrat, um, but not necessarily a, a person who's going to lead the country, um, not not just as a, as a as the as the leader of the United States, but also as a symbol for the rest of the world. That's how Trump would put it. Um, just label him as a label him as a bureaucrat, like what you did in Florida was nice, but. But you know you don't have the ability to like you know rally the country, um, and and create a movement. And I think that's the kind of the important point to remember here that presidential campaigns are about creating a social and political movement. Um, you know it's what Bernie Sanders did. It's what you know successfully. It's what Barack Obama did. It's what Bill Clinton did in '92. You know. Um, well, there's a name missing. There's a name. It's it's ironic that and, and accurate that you mentioned those names before the sitting president of the United States. Do you believe that Biden eventually in his past campaign did have a movement? And how does he get that movement back or something better? Well, I think there was a movement, but I don't know if it was a Biden movement so much as, and, this, and I've said that publicly, I think that and particularly when it when it's uh, when these questions about Biden's age, I don't know that Biden created the movement that got him elected in 2020. I think that movement existed. 
and he was the chief beneficiary of it. He he sort of led it. He was the face of it, but he didn't he didn't create it. And I would say the same thing in 2024. All of these issues that are going to motivate voters in 2024, reproductive rights, concerns about gun control and the mass shootings that have occurred in this country, concerns about white supremacy, racial hierarchy, all of those things Biden will benefit from, but he's not leading the charge necessarily, right? It's it's almost like when, when people talk about his age and I said, well, you, you know, the, the thing about Joe Biden, the position that Joe Biden's in right now is that the policy agenda doesn't begin with him. They're not, they don't reside within him such that there's no one else that can take the baton. The fact is all of these issues are there and are in the public's psyche. It's already done what it needed to do within the voter to energize that voter and mobilize that voter to go to the polls. So whether it's Joe Biden or it's Kamala Harris or it's any other Democrat, those issues are still going to be there and will still motivate voters. So I do think that there is a social and political movement occurring, but um, but Biden didn't necessarily create that in the same way that Obama did or that Bernie Sanders did. One more question from a national perspective uh, before we pivot into state, local, and then we'll get into a little bit of race and women. Um, how important was South Carolina? And can you explain in the previous presidential race what happened in South Carolina, especially for people of color and especially focused on Black people and, and how that energized the movement to help Biden get elected? Well, look, South Carolina has the largest Black vote in the primary in the country. And Jim Clyburn delivered that vote. And who is he? Oh, the member of Congress from South Carolina, high-ranking member within the Democratic Party and has been for quite some time. Clyburn delivered that vote to Joe Biden. So was, let me zoom out a little bit, because I think it's important to note that when, when Biden ran, well, well, before Biden got into the race, and a lot of folks said, um, they didn't think he could win, and you know he's going up against Bernie, and he's going to get up against Elizabeth Warren. These really dynamic figures, you know. And I said the one thing that Biden has, even though you know, and yes, he was Barack's vice president, and that counts for a lot. But the the, the real issue with Joe Biden is that he he respects the party structure and infrastructure, and that's I, and that is really going to matter. What I mean by that is. When, and I say this all the time, when, when Barack Obama ran, he ran around the Democratic Party. When Bernie Sanders ran, he ran against the Democratic Party. But, but Joe Biden understands the political infrastructure of the party. Um, he understands that, you know, there are folks who have been uh, active in, uh, in, the, in the Democratic organization for their whole adult lives. Um, and that needed respect. And I think Jim Clyburn is of that ilk. And so he would know to go to the Democratic machine in the States to say, look, I respect what you're doing. I will support you. I'll provide resources to you to get out the vote, to help you win down ballot. That was, the, that was key. Now, having said that, Clyburn, um, the history also becomes important. You know, Biden's been around a long time. So is Jim Clyburn. And so those long-term relationships really do matter. And so in a race where you had a lot of young candidates, a lot of folks who were new to, relatively new to national politics, 
Here's Joe Biden, who is Barack's vice president, who respects the democratic infrastructure, who's been around a long time, developed these relationships, and can lean on someone like a Jim Clyburn and say, look, I will elevate you uh, and, and your community and your state. And sure enough, he did, <laughs> you know, down the road. Um, he pushes the Democratic National Committee to change the primary rules so that South Carolina goes first. Now, I think that actually makes sense in a country whose demographics are changing quite substantially. Why be in Iowa and New Hampshire first when you have a, an electorate that's more representative of what's happening nationally in South Carolina? But it does go to show that not only is Clyburn has that tremendous amount of power, um, to have moved and changed the entire pol uh, political cycle um, so that, you know, he, his state goes first. But imagine then that same level of power endorsing uh, Joe Biden and having it change the, the shape and scope of the 2020 primary election outcome and get Biden elected. So it does get talked about generally around this time. But in an ongoing basis, it doesn't get talked about enough how powerful Jim Clyburn is to national politics. But it also allows a message for Biden to ring through. Age also means experience. Experience also means trust. Trust should mean votes. I trust this man, Jim Clyburn said, I'm, paraphr I'm paraphrasing. I've trust this man, you trust me. I've known him for decades. He's been there with us, people of color, forever. This is what we need to do. And, that, and there's an important point there because you know, um, Biden is uh, what 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 ends up happening is when you have a a primary that goes through South Carolina initially, um, you're able to talk to issues that affect that voter before um, before you get into anything else, right? In other words when you talk about issues affecting communities of color, but particularly African-Americans and African-American women who've held up the Democratic Party forever, you have the opportunity to, to speak to that and to mobilize those voters early. Whereas in the past, you know, when you go through Iowa and New Hampshire, you don't really, there is no, nothing forcing you to talk about issues affecting people of color for quite some time. That's right. So it's, so that's, that's, that's an important sort of takeaway. Let's pivot because that's a great place to pivot to. So um, one of the things I didn't emphasize in your in your bio is your great leadership over the years as executive director and past of the Democratic Party in New York State and your excellent role as an aide to various leaders, including former U.S. Senator from New York, Hillary Clinton, who was also the former first lady, obviously married to Bill Clinton. You know New York State Democratic uh, voters and the party well. We now have a governor who got her slot by the previous governor having stepped down. She did win her own race once thus far, but there are those that are in the Republican Party and there are those that are in the Democratic Party and New State and New York State who say that she's vulnerable. How important is it? You just mentioned black women in the Democratic Party. Let's talk about women in general and how important they are for the national vote, the statewide vote, the local vote, and of course, New York State as a subset that's huge, New York City, that some would say the demographics are close to almost three quarters people of color being in our city now, the 2010 
Uh, data says it was 68%. Is it somewhere near 70% now? And how important is that those demographics, women in general, women of color, understanding the shifts that are happening in our state before some other states are about to flip? Uh, talk a bit about New York state politics for, for a moment. Any Democratic primary of a statewide office is one in is one downstate in New York City. That's where the majority of Democratic voters are. I think something like 50, 58% of the Democrats in the state live within the five boroughs and you know going into Westchester and Nassau County. In that same space, you have only about 17 to 20% of the Republicans in the state. So Democratic primaries are one downstate. So you necessarily, running for statewide office, you necessarily have to do well in New York City, and you have to be able to speak to issues affecting voters of color because of the demographics that you cited. That is becoming less and less African-American, more and more Latino as more and more African-Americans move out of New York City and New York State. We've seen essentially a reverse of the great migration of the 20s and for, uh, going into World War II and after World War II. Um, um, you, you have a huge exodus of African-American families coming out of the state because it's very expensive to live here. There's no question about it. Um, and they can do more with, with their money elsewhere. But by the way, that's true for a lot of other families, even though New York City still has a particularly high population and in some ways growing um, in the rest of the state, um, we have lost population, which is why we've lost uh, a member of Congress in the, from the last census. Number one, you have to have a Democrat in the state running for statewide office, particularly in a primary, has to have an agenda that impacts communities of color to get elected. The concern that the party should have is that Kathy Hochul almost lost this general election, in part because she didn't focus enough on crime. I don't think she pivoted enough there. Voters still didn't really know her very well. But also, I, you know, I don't know that she spent a lot of time in New York City campaigning so that voters can get to know her. You know, I don't think she went to a black church until the last you know, couple of weeks of the campaign. And so uh, I, think I think voters are becoming more and more aware of the, um, uh, of the challenges of living in New York, you know, the expense and such. I think even though crime was co-opted by the Republicans, even though an African-American Democratic mayor and Eric Adams won in part by talking about being tough on crime, so Democrats clearly can do that. Uh, but th that narrative, I think, was ceded to the Republicans. It does suggest that there's a lot more attention to be paid to the suburban communities in Long Island and, and in upstate New York, areas that Kathy Hochul, I think, could have done well. She is a moderate from upstate New York, um, but I don't. I just don't think enough time was spent cultivating that vote. Um, and you know, New York lost. We lost. Uh, we contributed to the loss of the Democratic majority in the House, in part because um, because of some of these issues that there are certain voters in certain communities, particularly suburban communities, Hudson Valley, um, that I believe were not were not. Um, we're not talked to. Let me inject something important to your point a moment ago, which is really tied to the word strategy. Um, if the Latino community, including an immigrant Latino community, continues to grow in New York State and New York City, and we're sitting in a strategy meeting, whether it's for Republicans or Democrats, how on earth is seeking, for example, 
an easy 10% boost by focusing messages on Latino communities with a true understanding and not just patronizing uh, messages. Um, so for example, if, it's a, if New York is expensive for African-Americans, it's certainly expensive for Latinos. Why are Latinos coming in in larger numbers? I'll tell you why. Because the word freedom trumps money. The word freedom trumps even crime. The word freedom, as in where I'm coming from to get here, is different than you. And if you emphasize that, either from a Republican or Democratic perspective, you're going to win votes, especially if you say, I'm going to help you. No one has done that to date in, in, in an effective way in New York State. Is that not true? I think there, there are a couple of other issues that probably, I, 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 that I think um, hit home um, hit home with more immediacy. The first is, because I think it's not just an issue of the Latino community, it's also Asian American community. We've seen yes. that there's been a, 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 a shift, um, not completely, but there are more Latino and Asian Americans voting Republican than have in the last few cycles. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. One, I think they that the Asian American community, just speaking specifically there for a second, um, felt that Democrats were not being tough on crime at a point where violence against Asian Americans was skyrocketing. Asian hate, big time. Yeah, yep. that's right. And with a lot of the defund police conversations, there was concern that Democrats weren't being tough on crime, particularly in their community. The second piece, which I think is interesting, it doesn't get as much attention lately, is the question, the conversation that um, started in the Giuliani year, not Giuliani, in the de Blasio years, around the specialized high schools. And that the concern was that there were leaders that were concerned about a representation of African-Americans and Latinos in specialized high schools, specifically Stuyvesant, but all of them, where Asian-American populations were- Dominated. Based on a percentage within the general population. The fix that was being discussed was to drop the test. And the Asian-American community is like, hey, you know, why are you going to change the rules in the middle of the game? We got, we, this was the rule. You know, our students were doing very well. And because of that, you're punishing us. Uh, and I, you know, if I'm an Asian American parent, I'd feel the same way. Um, and so I think there was a lot of backlash to that as well. Uh, it's particularly at a time when there's so much emphasis on high school to college transition and college to career success. These schools were seen as important pieces in that sort of continuum. Um, and now you, there's this view that, that Democrats are taking that away from these Asian-American children. So let me play devil's advocate to that or, or, or give a couple sound bites to that. You just said something that impacts not just schools, but all of America. Why are we changing the rules in the middle of the game? And the answer is because society changed in general for the first time in history in major cities and in sub-suburban areas and soon in the entire country where the demographics will not be white-led first, maybe forever. That's why. And to make it more fair, we need to realize that some of the old rules, including the old tests, were and still are unfair especially for demographics that now are in the majority. 
Said even more simply, tests don't determine as the only factor success anywhere. And the tests were designed for white people. Asians happen to do well on those same tests. But when we measure success in other measures external to testing, we see, for example, that Latinos and Blacks can do well in a Stuyvesant environment, in a college environment, in a grad school environment, in a law school and medical school. I can go on and on. So that's the reason why it's being pushed back. Now, what that says to America and the world is, for those who are used to the branding of those tests and decisions in society, we don't like that. So then we have to come up if we're seeking to get Asians, Latinos, African-Americans, immigrants as a coalition, a message that hits a win-win-win-win, four wins, not just one, to be able to hold together a coalition. How do we get those parents onto a different, those Asian parents, for example, away from being angry and onto a better message that's more holistic for their family and community other than just that one issue? So it's a couple of things. One, uh, I think the messaging around that, the testing was wrong because I think, first of all, I'm just, I'm opposed to sort of one test being the the, same, the sole determinant. So I, I'm actually, sure. so that that is one, that is important. Me too. But what, what I think gets missed here is that on this specific issue of, of these schools is that it is possible that African-American and let some African-American and Latino households have found another way. There's, in other words, there are multiple paths to college and career success. It doesn't just go yes. through these specialized high schools. And it is possible right. that African-American and other African-American Latino students beyond those that apply to these specialized high schools have found these alternatives. I helped start the Eagle Academy in the Bronx, which is now six schools. And there's like, I don't know, like a 95, 96, 97% graduation, but also college going rate. Um, so that is in and of itself, that in and of itself may be an issue, maybe a, 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 what do they say? A solution looking for a problem, right? Like it's, yes, those numbers are, tell a terrible story, but maybe not. Maybe they actually tell a story that there's, there, there are, there's a, an education ecosystem that is providing some of the support that is that is needed so these schools don't maintain aren't the only path to that kind of success having said that i i feel that um you know one one of the things that i i do believe is that there is this backlash to progressive politics right the, whether it's defund police whether it's certain type of curriculum or what's included in curriculum. I do think there's a backlash to that. I disagree with parts of that backlash. I do understand I teach a class in police reform, criminal justice reform. So I necessarily talk about what a post-George Floyd America looks like, should look like, and what the conversations are on both sides. But I understand that there are significant populations, Latino, Asian American, that feel that the Democrats um, have lost that, have, have taken a back seat to um, stronger, that moderate Democrats have taken a back seat to stronger progressive voices within the party that are leading the conversation, as opposed to some of that moderation. And it's also true about immigration policy, right? Um, you know, I listen to, uh, my, my family's Jamaican and, you know, uh, and so I'm very, very well attuned to immigrant politics. 
Um, and, you know, I was listening to some folks talk the other day, um, people that I just knew who were, who were West Indian and um, some Latino. And, you know, they, they, you know, they'll say with this migrant crisis, well, what are we going to do with all of them? And I said, well, you know, some people said that about you when you all came That's here, right. Right? or when my family came here, right? But also said about Italians and Irish, and you know, let's not let let's let's not make it only about the most recent immigrants. They tend to forget, and I have to emphasize this: that the Irish and Italians, for example, were considered lower than black at one point in this country literally working underground, not even above ground on many projects. And I've said that that boldly and loudly in political meetings and in, in, in corporate meetings to remind when I've heard racist statements come from those who are immigrants themselves. So go ahead. No, it, it, it's I think what some constituencies that had belonged to the Democratic coalition were very strong and powerful within the Democratic coalition. I think what some are saying is that the Democrats have become too beholden to the progressive parts of the party, that the the rules that they had to follow no longer exist for the next generation. And they're and they're reacting to that. And they're, you know, in many ways rejecting that. Um, and and you know, when you have uh, the, the Republicans, as you touched on this before, you know, when you have someone like a DeSantis, um, you know, engaged in school board elections, governors don't engage in school board elections, but, you know, they talk to parents about parent freedom. That sounds very close to personal freedom. And that, you know, opens the door for a whole lot of other conversations around what the Republican Party um, stands for versus what the Democrats stand for. And that, that is part of the reason that some of these constituencies, some Latino voters, some Asian American voters, are you know are being pulled away from the Democratic Party. Not in the same way that Republicans are being pulled away from their party, but um, you know we saw from 2016 to 2020. By 2020, more there were more Latino and Asian American votes for Donald Trump than there were in 2016, and that says something in New York, and that says something, uh, and that and that. That does not bode well for Democrats in the future. Well, it's interesting. You know, I have worked both sides of the aisle for more than 30 years. Uh, I was a Democrat. I still am a Democrat, personally, who applied for an internship in, in Albany and checked Democrat, Long Island. And I got placed with Republican from Westchester at, at 18 years old. And had an opportunity to just quit and say, I'm not doing this, or go in and learn. And when I went in to learn, I learned, at least back in those days, in the early 80s, that we can compromise and do things together. And I had to shift my mind while working for this Republican from Westchester that there's some good things about it. And it was focused on constituent relationships, which I also did with Senator D'Amato. He did some good things for people, including people of color. So, for example, when I worked for Demata, one of the things we did is we went up to uh, Hale House privately, no media, just me and him, held a crack baby when people were afraid to hold crack babies. He's crying, and I said, Senator, you know, what's, what's happening? He's, and, and Mother Hale is listening, and, and he says, my mother didn't want me to do something about this. He went all the way back to his roots as an Italian in the midst of it. I wasn't thinking he was going there. 
And he said, what do you need? And he added more than a million dollars to a bill. And that expanded Hale House from being in a small space to a larger space early on. And he kept giving money year after year. We didn't go to the media and have a press conference out in front and say, hey, look at what I'm doing for the black community at the time. And there were a number of different issues like that that we were involved with. My point is, if we don't start getting back to that position of understanding, now, hate's going hate's gonna to be a big issue in the midst of this that's going to stop us from having some of those coalitions and compromises and working together. But if we're looking at people of color, Asian, Latino, African-American, immigrant, if we don't have that as our base, to your point of being too progressive, and listen actively to an Asian concern the same way that we listen to an African-American concern, or listen to a Latino concern the same way that we listen to the other two groups, we're not going to win. And they're going to continue to slide back in after four years or after two years on various races. There's a chance of someone getting in next time, even in New York City. So let's pivot now to uh, Mayor Adams. There are some that are saying Mayor Adams is going to be a one-term mayor. There, there are some that are saying Mayor Adams talks more about himself than he does his city. There are some that say that Mayor Adams isn't educated to make policy decisions and even fill jobs in his administration. That's part of his oppo research package. I've seen it with some Democrats even that are thinking about running against him in the next term. And it's factually correct. So how do we, with almost three quarters of the city now, people of color and a growing Latino base and a growing Asian base, how does an opponent or the current sitting mayor hold on to that majority so that a Republican or a rich white Democrat who's much more moderate and maybe even leaning conservative on issues slides in to win versus somebody of color and continuing to lead based on the demographics that we currently have that continue to grow? Well, look, I, I go back to Mike Bloomberg in 2003. Five, he got 47% of the black vote on a Republican line. I mean, that's unheard of, right? right? But he was able to say, what do you want? And was able to deliver. Yeah, so there, so there are two things with that. I say that, uh, I always give that stat because of, but, but it's important to, but it's important to remember one thing. He also spent about $100 million on Yes, exactly. Uh, but, 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 you know, people, there are a lot of, history is replete with rich men and women who've run for office and didn't win. So what was the difference here? The difference here with Mike Bloomberg and the three terms, and I worked for full disclosure on the third term, 2009, the controversial one, uh, but I worked on that reelect. Um, but that said, I do think that New Yorkers want a good manager. New Yorkers generally care about each other, right? They care about justice, they care about safety, security, quality of life but they don't necessarily want you to run with a political, with a specific political ideology. They want you to be a good manager. They want you to be a good manager. They want you to be accessible. They don't want you thinking about another office. They want you to be solely focused on New York. And I think, it, so, so, so while I do believe that Eric Adams will get a second term, assuming all things being equal and nothing massive, major and traumatic happens, um, if, if someone were going to challenge him in a primary, or even in a general, um, that person I think would have to find a way to present himself or herself as a good manager for the city. Because even up until 
2021-2022, voters in New York still felt fondly about Mike Bloomberg generally. And again, because he just he presented more as just a, a manager with a very clear vision, whether you liked it or not, a clear vision for how he viewed uh, the future of New York City. Or, or I want to interject strongly, it has nothing to do with policy. It has nothing to do with the past. And a strong oppo research, you and I know the power of finding negatives, comes out on Eric Adams. And that's all we're talking about in the middle of the election cycle. And I'm being told there's some stuff there. Well, there might be. Um, and some of it came out in, in, the, in the election in 2021. And you're also seeing stuff come out even while he has been mayor. But given the way term limits have sort of altered our view of voting for mayors, Democrats in a primary will give you that next term. The question is, if he were to have a challenge, where would that challenge come from? I, you, could, you could imagine someone going to his left, feeling that he hasn't pushed the defund police reform enough, going to the governor and asking for her to push back on bail reform. So you could see someone coming for, from his left, but there could also be someone coming from his right, either in a primary or in a, in a, in a general election. And the narrative would be for that candidate to um, that they need to forego this ideology to be a better manager um, and to have more of a meritocratic approach to, um, to the political, to the appointments that are being made in agencies and within the department, within his own circle. One of the messages that is always on the table is how do we win the vote for white women? And understanding white women on both sides of the aisle, but understanding white women just in general. How important is the white female vote still in America, New York State, and New York City to close? It's still incredibly important. The Democrats were successful in winning that vote with issues like gun control and normalcy in our government. Democrats were successful in 2020. They staved off a red wave in 2022 as a result of that. And I think in 2024, particularly on the issue of, of reproductive rights and gun control, um, I think that vote's going to be incredibly important to Democrats as well. Um, in in certain in communities for local races, um, you know, they also, you know, Democrats can't see the, the questions about crime. You know, Lee Zeldin was very good at, in New York at taking that message and being able to exploit it within the suburban communities in Long Island and parts upstate. But Democrats can't can't let that happen. Um, but I do think on those two other issues, the gun control and reproductive rights, and also the sort of third issue of anti-white supremacy, some normalcy to our governance. When you look nationally, that is a winning message for suburban white voters, particularly suburban white women. Is race the number one issue still federally, statewide, and locally in politics? Race is, will forever be an issue um, that manifests in a thousand different ways, not just in terms of the decisions of the individual voter, but in the institutions themselves. So when you consider that there are still over 200 bills in the country right now that will have the effect of suppressing votes, particularly votes of color and those of poor Americans. Race is still and will for the foreseeable future be a factor in our elections and in our policymaking. 
One word answer to close. Who's going to be our next president? Who's going to be our next governor? And who's going to be our next mayor? 2024, I expect Joe Biden to still be to be reelected. Um, I think Kathy Hochul gets at least a second term, perhaps not a third, but will likely get a second term. Same with um, Eric Adams, second term, maybe not a third. Well, I don't think it's legal to get a third at this point. <laughs> I, think <that> loophole, <laughs> I think that loophole got closed after 2009, we'll see. Basil, so thankful to have you on the program. Um, proud to be a fellow SEPA alum from Columbia University. And uh, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your commentary. Thank you for being on the program. It was my pleasure, man. It was great seeing you and being with you. Thank you. And this week's t-shirt is from Columbia University. Both Basil and I are graduates of Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. I graduated a different year than him, but we're proud grads and uh, proud to rep Columbia University on this week's show. So this week's Rep Doc Opinion is politics, politics, politics. What are the key issues tied to the national elections, the statewide elections, and the local elections? Well, as our guest told us, race is a big issue, women's issues, including reproductive rights are a big issue, guns in America, Killing people is still a big issue. Crime is a big issue. Education is a big issue. And jobs and the economy are still big issues. If you can hit some very strong messages and home runs that build trust, which means it has to be fact-based versus simply promise-based, I think you'll win. Let's see if those key strategies are held by the Democratic Party more or the Republican Party more. We'll have to wait and see. But those issues are going to be critical to any upcoming election. Thank you. And please follow us on our YouTube channel and also on audio digital form on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Have a terrific week. We'll see you soon.